Our Father, we ask now as we together prepare to hear you speak to us from your word, your living word, the living word from the living God, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes to exalt Christ in the hearts of your people. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, now it says in your bulletin, uh, Psalm 100 and then Psalm of Thanksgiving. Now, there's an old joke about a preacher who was asked why he kept preaching the same message week after week. And he said, well, when you start doing that one, I'll move on to the next one. Uh, that's not the reason that it's in there. So we are, that was just a mistake on my part for not getting the information there. thought you'd think that was a little funny, but... Anyway, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We're going to spend this week and this next week uh, in this glorious uh, passage. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 um, this morning, and then we'll look at the 9 through 17 next week. And then we'll have Tim uh, is going to bring us a message uh, on the glory of Christ out of the Gospels. And then we'll look at Christ again as we have Christmas Eve on the 24th, which is on a Sunday which is always kind of fun. And as you know, just as a side note here, we are having a Christmas Eve service rather than in the evening. We're going to have it uh, on a Sunday morning. We'll have a special service then. And then we'll pick up with Revelation again in uh, January. But this morning we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. As we continue to look at this revelation, this message uh, from God through the prophet John about his purposes for the end of this age. And I want to introduce it just broadly by noting that people have different responses in thinking about uh, how they might respond to any kind of consequence for the gospel, any kind of suffering that might come as a result of uh, a person's individual testimony. And, and some respond to this with a sense of bravado, a sense that, uh, you know, no matter what comes, I have the strength, I will not fail, I will stand firm, whatever, whatever the cost is, is I'm, I'm ready to pay it. And that, we see an example of how that works out sometimes in the life of Peter. That was the tact that he took, and the Lord had to humble him and to remind him not to depend on his own strength. And then there's others who contemplate the future and they think about the cost of what uh, might come for their testimony to Christ. And they worry and they fear and they may have anxiety. They may have a sense of weakness where they will they fail and so forth. Uh, but both of these are wrong on different sides of the issue, but for the same reason. And namely this, that they have a focus on self rather than a focus on God. Rather than a focus on God's sovereign purposes. And Scripture continually reminds us that God measures out what He has for each of us to go through in our service to Him, and His grace is sufficient to each for whatever He has measured out, and whatever He has determined will be both the circumstances and the fruit and the consequences of our witness to Him. His grace is sufficient. We are only to seek to be faithful day in and day out. And we are reminded continually throughout Scripture, but particularly as we anticipate these things in the book of Revelation, that God is absolutely sovereign. He is completely in control. He is always working behind the scenes. He is fulfilling His will, and He is sustaining His people, and He is protecting His word, and He is advancing His purposes in the world. God is absolutely sovereign. He's working in the world. He's working in our lives. And it means then... Not only in the present do we have a certain hope that God is good and doing good, even in the trials and the suffering, but we also have the certain hope that he will fulfill his promises, that he will bring about everything that he has said he will. Well, with that in mind, let's consider these things in Revelation chapter 7. As I noted, we'll look at verses 1 through 8 this morning, so if you will, read this with me and then we'll... Consider it more closely. Beginning in verse 1 of Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 100, 
and 44,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And so is the word of God. Now let's consider what this means. Go, go back up with me to verse 1 of chapter 7, and let's look first, and we're going to break this up into two just broad points. First, the sight of the angels, the sight that John sees in this vision, and secondly, the sovereign seal of the saints. So the sight of the angels and then the sovereign seal of the saints. So go back up to verse 1, and he says, he begins with, after this, after this. After this is a reference to all the apostle just saw in the vision that is recorded for us in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 6. The four horsemen, the plagues, the civil unrest, the devastation, the martyrs under the throne, and the great uh, judgments that are going to come through God through the destruction by the earth on those who dwell upon it in rebellion to him. That's the this, and so it's after this that these next events are going to come. The question, though, comes up at first is how are these events to come related to the ones that he just mentioned? Well, we would note up front that some, in fact, even many, uh, well, some, want to see this as uh, going back to a time before those events recorded for us in chapter 6, or at least contemporaneous with them, and referring to uh, how God is protecting his people through the four horsemen and so forth. So they see this really in a retrospective sense, looking back to chapter 6 and giving another layer of what God is doing in those times. However, the phrase after this in Revelation is continually used to not only introduce a new vision, but also to advance those visions in the unfolding events of God's plan. So the vision here introduces new events that must take place before the judgments of the trumpets begin in chapter 8. That is the very point of the vision. It is an interlude. It is events. It is an account for what God is doing that he must do before he brings about the things that he will do in the trumpet judgments beginning in chapter 8. So what is best seen here then is this new vision is introducing this interlude to show how God is preparing his people for what he will do in the coming events. Now, what then does John see after this in this vision? Well, notice at first he sees four angels. He sees four angels. These angels are tasked with holding back the four winds of the earth. They are tasked with holding back the natural forces of wind that are being, will be used for judgment. And I would just note here as a, a brief observation, it is something helpful for us to remember that the angels continually play a significant role in God's working out his will among men and among creation. We see that throughout scriptures, angels are always involved with God's event or the events that God is working out in the lives of his people. It was the angels who gave who came to his servants, the patriarchs. Often we see Abraham uh, and others. We see angels that were involved with the giving of the law on Sinai. We see angels that are protecting his people. Daniel talks about angel of Israel, and there's angels that are uh, governing other nations. There's angels even that were involved in the life of Christ throughout the Gospels, that they ministered to him in the temptation and at other times in his life. Angels are involved in the work of God and his people. Hebrews 2 tells us that angels are involved in the lives of his people. Hebrews 13 tells us that sometimes we entertain angels unaware. In other words, there's much going on behind the scenes that Scripture gives us little glimpses into. Here throughout Revelation, we know that it was the angel of Christ that was the instrument through whom God Christ mediated his message to the Apostle John. He says that in chapter 1. And angels throughout are involved in God's work of both salvation and judgment. And yet the angels of God 
are more and mightier than the angels who fell and are under the influence and the direction of Satan. Here, these are angels of God who are being used by him in the judgments that will come. And so what are they doing? These angels, as we just read, are standing at the four corners of the earth and they're holding back the four winds of the earth. This is a dynamic in, uh, imagery. They are standing and they are holding back and there's a, a sense of there's this judgment ready to burst forth and the only thing that's holding it back is the assignment of these heavenly beings until God gives them permission to stop holding it back and let it be unleashed. They are in control of the forces of nature. Here, the wind. Later, we see angels in command of fire in chapter 14 and other places. We see the angels in command of the water in chapter 16. The point is, is that they are doing the will of God. And he uses interesting language here. He notices, or he says, that these angels are standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, some see in this language a, a primitive understanding of the earth. That it's flat and a square, and so you have angels standing at these four corners. And, and certainly, primitive man, in many ways, before our scientific discoveries here, did think in that way. But that's not what he's saying here. There was no... Jewish sense that the earth was flat. In fact, Scripture even gives strong indications uh, that they understood the earth to be a sphere. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 40, 22 uses the language of the circle of the earth. And in one sense, that's speaking of how the sun is envisioned by, from the, the standpoint of earth as it goes in a circuit around the earth. It also is a statement of divine inspiration that always is going to speak accurately about God's creation. In other words, there was not some misguided sense here in the four corners of the earth that the earth was flat. This is, in fact, a way in Scripture to speak about the entirety of the globe, comprehensively about all of the earth. Let me give you one example. In Isaiah eleven twelve, 12, God gathers his scattered people and he says, and he will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That means is every place in the earth where he has scattered them, he will reach out and bring them back. He will gather them back. Also, sometimes this language of the four corners of the earth is, is used to refer to the four directions of the wind and the different ways that it blows, northeast, south, and west, and, and so forth. And that's picked up in the next phrase. The four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth. Again, an unusual phrase for us. We're, as we already noted, particularly when we looked at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 6, that God is in control of the earth and God in judgment, both in the flood throughout the history of the world and in the future, uses the earth to judge the earth. The, the creation itself was cursed when sin entered into the world. And so here, wind or wind throughout Scripture is often used in, in a, as a means of judgment with a sense of the destruction that it brings. Let me just give you a few examples of this. We won't spend a lot of time. There is the wind that brings death to the plants and vegetation, the hot winds of the desert. Sometimes it's known as the Sirocco wind. It's mentioned several times uh, in Scripture, this east wind that blows, that brings devastation. Ezekiel 17.10, for example, says, Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not completely wither as soon as the east wind strikes it, wither on the beds where it grew? Wind is seen as, as a powerful force stirring up the sea. In Mark 4.37, it says there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was filling up. And so we see those kind of examples. The wind is this powerful force, this destructive force, this force that can stir up the ocean, that can cause death to vegetation. But here he uses a particular phrase and he says it's the four winds of the earth. And this too is found throughout scripture to communicate many things. In Ezekiel 37.9, it's a reference to the omnipresence of the Spirit who gives life to what was dead in the vision of the valley of dry bones. He says this in verse 9 of Ezekiel 37, Say to the breath, 
Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. Speaks of God's stirring up nations to bring destruction. Daniel 7, 2, in a vision of the four beasts, as he's introducing this vision of the four beasts, which are these four Gentile kingdoms that will arise in the future, the future to Daniel's time. It says, as he was speaking here even to Belshazzar, he says, I was looking in my visions in the night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. What does he mean of that here? Here, the great sea is the great sea out of which these nations will arise. The sea is sometimes used prophetically to speak of the mass of humanity, and particularly the mass of fallen humanity. Here, the winds and the four winds are best captured in this, and I quote, the winds are depicted in the act of bursting forth against the sea, meaning they were stirring it up as in the time of a storm. The winds stand for various forces which play upon the nations serving to bring strife and trouble, end quote. And that's just an accurate way to capture it. The four winds in that are depicting of God of working among the nations to stir them up to accomplish his purposes. A passage that's always often seen as background here is Jeremiah 49, 36. When God brings these things together to speak of his judgment that is coming upon Elam. He says this in Jeremiah 49, 36. I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four ends of heaven and will scatter them to all the winds and there will be no nation to which the outcast of Elam will not go. And here the four winds and the four ends of heaven serve as a metaphor for the enemies of Elam. And God rouses and suddenly stirs the winds of heaven as he does that, so he will stir their enemies to come and to destroy them and to scatter them. Speaks sometimes of the earth in its entirety. Daniel 8.8 speaks of the nation that was under Alexander the Great, formed under Alexander the Great when he died early and it was dispersed to four of his generals. It says that there came up a conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven, speaking of the four generals that would come from him and take over parts of his kingdom. Significantly, however, Jesus uses the same imagery, speaking of his return, says he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky of the other, there to refer to all of the ends of the earth where his people are, he will gather them. What does he mean here? Here, the four winds refer then to the judgment that is coming upon the earth what judgment here it's a judgment that is stayed but again it won't be stayed forever it's till god accomplishes his purpose of sealing the saints it is the judgments that are to come it represents the judgments then that are to come upon the earth and particularly those judgments that are going to be described in chapter 8 1 and following the judgment of the trumpets the trumpets that will come as a result of the opening of the seventh seal of judgments. Then this great devastation will come, it says in just a few places here, including now the, the element of fire. It says the earth will be burned up, trees will be burned up, grass will be burned up. It talks about ships of the sea that will be destroyed a third of the rivers rivers and springs of water and so forth all of this will be devastation that comes once God unleashes these angels to execute their purpose of bringing judgment on the earth he says here then he defines that task he says they are holding back they are at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree in other words it was not yet time for that destruction to come and these are to be taken literally some there's no reason to see these as symbolic again the sea is the mass of humanity trees as men and as it is in other prophetic literature here he makes clear he's talking about these very earthly elements and the destruction that is going to come upon them that is now being held off and stayed and the overall picture here is is a theme that runs throughout is god's absolute sovereignty over creation both animate and inanimate objects, both human and angelic beings. He is above all of it, accomplishing his will. 
He then next sees in verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. This is now the fifth angel that comes into his vision. Here he is defined or described as coming, rising up out of the rising of the sun. What does he mean by that phrase? Well, some, if you have older translations, the King James Version, or some, even if you have the NIV, and there's some other translations, uh, will say, rising from the east. And while that's not an accurate translation of the actual words, uh, it is the idea here. It is a phrase that's meant to communicate in the east. So this angel is seen as rising with the sun, where the sun rises in the east. And this actually plays a significant role in the imagery here. It's not merely a detail. It's not merely an interesting picture. But the idea of the east plays a significant role throughout Scripture. Let me just give you a hint of that, leading to where I think its significance is here. You can remember, for example, that, well, you may not remember, but I'll remind you, in Genesis 2.8, the Garden of Eden was planted in the east, when man sinned and was ejected from the garden, Adam and Eve, there was a cherubim plain, uh, placed to protect entrance at the gate in the east, to the east of the garden. Ishmael was to live to the east of his brothers in Genesis 16. The evil influences on Israel are often noted as coming from the east, her enemies from the east. Even in Revelation 16, 12, as kings prepare for this battle of Armageddon, it says the kings will come from the east. When Jesus returns in Zechariah chapter 14, he will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem. He says, on the east. In a more positive sense, the Magi came and traveled from the east as they followed the star to the newborn Savior in Luke chapter 1, verse 78. This imagery is actually also captured in Christ. He's described as the morning star the morning star which signals the arrival of daylight through the rising of the sun in the east, as one noted. So what is the purpose here of this angel and him rising in the east? Most likely, it's better, it's best to understand this as him rising from the east as a symbol of the deliverance that he is going to bring to those who are the sealed of God, which we'll look at in a moment. It's a picture of God's bringing deliverance through this angel, deliverance from the east, as he often has done in the past. And yet there is a dual sense here as well, isn't there? Because while he brings, in a sense, the salvation and the certainty of the sealing of those who are marked out by God, at the same time, once that task is completed, there is the certainty as well that the judgment will come. It's only stayed temporarily. And let's look then secondly. This is his vision of the angels. Uh, now get to the main point of their task, uh, beginning in the second part of verse 2. And this is the sovereign sealing of the saints. He says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants or the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And this then is the significant feature of this another angel, this particular angel that is rising up with the rising of the sun. The idea is rising up in the east. But the significant feature here is that he, have, is he is having the seal of the living God, the seal of the living God. Now, one striking thing right off the bat here is the very imagery of the seal. If you'll remember, what is Christ's unopening? What are the judgments that have already been revealed? It is the breaking of the seals, the document with the seven seals that was introduced to us in chapter 5. That was handed to him by the Father. That would be the beginning of the unleashing of the judgments of God on the earth. The idea of seal is a major theme leading up to this point. And set now it takes on a different direction rather than something Christ is un, uh, unleashing, that he's opening for the judgments that are to come upon the earth. This is a seal that is to bring about protection and salvation. This is God's purposes being 
brought about for good, good to those who are called out. The first seals are of judgment. The second seal, the second seal is of salvation. Now, what is the seal? Well, it's not stated exactly what this seal is. Interestingly, and I just make a note of this, uh, some have seen this seal, and particularly some in the early church, as water baptism, as water baptism. And this is related to, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 9, we're going to go back to that passage later, but there's a mark set on some of the servants. And in early Hebrew script, the, the first letter of that word uh, had looked like a cross. It was written like a cross, and so they see there's some kind of connection. Some early Christians as well saw this as water baptism, but related it to the work of the sealing of the epistles in the, in the epistles of Paul, or the sealing of the Spirit in the epistles of Paul, and they transferred that idea here. But none of those ideas are in the text, and those are just the invention of those who want to see it. The seal here is, although not described, is best probably associated with that idea of the seal of a, of a ruler, of a king, who had a signet ring. And, of course, he had his seal on that ring, and then he would stamp it in soft wax, and it was his mark. It was a mark of authority, a mark of his approval, and so forth. Notice how he describes that here. He says, it is having the seal of the living God. The seal of the living God, not merely a human monarch, but the monarch of all of creation and the creator of all of creation, of all things. It's the seal of the living God, the one who is in absolute control over the situation. It marks his active participation in the unfolding events. There's something else to this as well. This idea of the seal of the living God. It points to the contrast between who God is, who alone has life in himself, who gives and takes away life, as he is contrasted with those things that are dead and lifeless. Gods of the people, certainly. The idols of the people, certainly. The emptiness, even as he'll bring up later, of materialism as they're following with godlike devotion, the one who's claiming deity for himself, and we won't turn there in Revelation 18, they are the ones who got rich, rich out of the whoredom of Babylon for their own gain. They gave over to all of the temptations and the lust that were presented to them. They were the dead things, the empty things, and there may even be a sense here in which John is anticipating, or this vision through John is anticipating that deceptive work of the Antichrist in chapter 3, verse 13, where it says he had one of his heads as if slain, a fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was mazed after the beast because he seemed to be dead, and then yet he came back to life. In fact, this idea of Satan and the kingdom of the Antichrist mimicking the work of God, the nature of God and the work of God, is a major theme throughout the book of Revelation. Not only in this sense, but even in the idea of a seal. Matter of fact, three times it's mentioned in reference after verse chapter 13, all the way uh, and, through, and throughout the rest of Revelation, that those who are a part of the kingdom of Antichrist are marked by his seal. Revelation 13, 16. Speaking of the beast, the Antichrist. He causes all to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Revelation 14, 9. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Revelation 24. Those who had not worshipped the beast or his image had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. In other words, some aspect of this kingdom of the Antichrist that is to come will involve him trying to force on those who want to buy into this system, who are willing to buy into this system on the pain of death, we would note, to have some kind of visible mark on their body, even on their, either on their hand or on their forehead that marks them as a part of the system. The very identity of those who are the chosen of God is that they refuse to receive this mark because receiving this mark as it relates to the kingdom of Antichrist is to agree with the system itself. And they will refuse to do that. 
But it is just another way that the Antichrist and that Satan is trying to mimic the work of God. But by contrast, however, this is not what God is asking people to do. He's not asking the 144,000 to take on the seal. It is a sovereign work of God. It's what he's doing by angelic activity, marking these on. And it's not likely that the seal here by the angels is some kind of visible seal, something that can be seen physically on the body of those who are sealed. But rather, it is a mark that is seen or put on them and seen and known by God for his purposes show that Satan is trying to force that on men physically, but God is the one ultimately standing over all of that, accomplishing his purposes, and he's sealing those who are his, in contrast to Satan and those who are part of that diabolical kingdom. And so he says here that he, this angel rising had the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And what did he say? He said, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. We would just notice that there is the implication here is it's made clear again throughout Scripture that there is an order to the angelic realm. Not only does it exist, not only does it serve God's purposes, not only does it consist of those holy angels God kept for himself, called in scripture the elect angels, the chosen angels, and those who were left to themselves and those who fell, which are what we now call demons in the demonic world under the influence of Satan, the greatest fallen angel. But there is a certain hierarchy to the angelic realm and both in the fallen angels and in the holy angels. And here, this is a great angel who seems to have a level of authority over the other angels as he is giving them a command. But what's interesting to notice here is that all of them are under the authority of God, the command of God. Notice, just as an observation here, that he says the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth, granted by whom, not the angel who's giving the command, it was granted by God. There's a particular verb here that's used in a particular way that we've noted before that is consistently used throughout Revelation that has as its subject, its actor, God. It's God who gave the Antichrist the period of time to persecute. It's God who is here giving these angels that authority. And it's God who's given the command or the, to the angel who's giving the command to the other angels. In other words, the fact is God is in control. We want to take every opportunity to note that which is throughout. So here he gives them a command, this greater angel, and the command is to hold back until the sealing is done. Until the sealing is done. Again, it's temporary. And just make, again, another observation. He notes here, until we have made the sealing. He says, until we have sealed. Where did this plural come from? Well, text doesn't tell us. It most likely refers to an unnamed select group among the angelic realm who are tasked with the sealings, doing the sealing. Again, the point is that the angels are the servants of God. Now, what is the purpose of the seal? That's the main thing. What is the purpose of the seal? Well, there are two general purposes of the seal. One is this. It is a seal that marks salvation. It's a seal that marks salvation. These are those who belong to God. It's not necessarily the moment of salvation, but it is marking out those who are the possession of God, the redeemed. Note how he, how he identifies them. Sealed the bondservants or the slaves of our God. You're familiar with bondservants and many newer translations translate that as slave. It's a common word, doulos. He sealed the slaves of God on their forehead. These are, this is regularly an identification of those who belong to God, to the redeemed, those who are identified with Christ, those who are beheaded. It is the slaves of God. They're marked that way throughout uh, Revelation. We won't look at all of these passages. But these are the saved. These are the redeemed. What's interesting here, however, just as a note again, is that the term for seal here is not the usual term that would be used for marking out slaves. 
And one noted, uh, commentator noted that, that in, the, uh, in the ancient world, when a slave was marked on their forehead in a secular sense, that was often a, a mark of shame. It was a demeaning act of punishment, but that's not the idea here. When it is speaking of our belonging to Christ, and Christ is our master, and him is the Lord, and we as his slave, it has not the idea of demeaning punishment, but of near intimacy, of closeness, of belonging, and of possession. And that's the idea he has here, even in this salvation. He says he marked them on their forehead, not as a means of demeaning, but as a means of showing his close, intimate relationship and connection with them. It's ownership of the nearest kind. As a matter of fact, just by way of illustrating this in chapter 22, verse 4, don't turn there. Speaking of that intimate fellowship that we'll have with Christ, he says, and they, us who belong to him and all of the redeemed, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. It speaks of intimacy, of closeness. Here, the sense of belonging those who are the saved of God. But it has another purpose as well. And this is where this is pointing to. It has the idea of protection. It's marking them out as redeemed. God is marking out his redeemed in this time, but he's also marking out his protection of them. Now, we've already noted this, or I noted it briefly again, when we were looking at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 6. We, I noted there the example of, Israel and Egypt, when God was unleashing his judgments on Egypt, it says several times, we won't go back and look at each of these passages, but it says several times that God made a distinction between Israel and the land of Goshen. God made a distinction between Israel when the death of the firstborn there because of the Passover. God made a distinction at various plagues that were coming so that Pharaoh would know that God is the one who is bringing these plagues. God is the one making the distinction. God is the one who is accomplishing his will in all of these events, even in the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. So that's not a new idea here. The idea is the same. Out of these judgments that are coming upon the earth, God is making a distinction, and the distinction is one of protection. Probably the most immediate background of this, and it's worth turning to just very briefly, is in Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God is revealing the judgment that is to come upon Jerusalem. He's been laying out before the prophet the great apostasy and sin of the people and the reason that God is so angry with them and why judgment cannot be stayed any longer. And he's preparing the nation or the city of Jerusalem to receive this judgment. But before he does, he gives this account. It says in verse 1, And then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Maybe a reference here to his angelic instruments. Verse 2, Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a riding case at his loins. And they went in, and they stood beside the bronze altar. Verse 3, Then the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the riding case. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem. And here it is. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all of the abominations which are committed in its midst. In other words, those who were the righteous, those who saw the iniquity and the apostasy and the idolatry of the rest of their countrymen, and they were grieved at what they saw, it distressed them, they sighed and they groaned in their regenerate hearts because of the evil that surrounded them, the dishonor to God. And God says, mark them out, mark them out, set them apart. But to the others, he said, in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike and do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. That's the sense here. Kind of devastating judgment that's coming, but God says, I have some that are my own. I have some of my own, and I want you to put a mark on them. They are mine. I am going to protect them. What is he going to protect them from? 
He's going to protect them from primarily his own wrath and his own judgment. We noted this before in Revelation 9-4, when there's a certain demonic horde that's led out of the pit of the, the abyss there for the bringing destruction and suffering on the earth. He says in verse 4, they were yet given a command, again, sovereignty, even over the demonic realm. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor the green, any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were protected, those who had this seal, from this demonic torture and suffering. You see something similar in chapter 16, verse 2. It says, in the bowls of wrath, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome, malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image but not on those who had the mark of God, not on those who were protected by him. There was a distinction. One either had the mark of God or the mark of the beast. Those who had the mark of God were protected from God's judgment. However, and this is what's important to note, this does not mean that they were protected ultimately from the wrath and the persecution of the Antichrist himself. Indeed, these who are sealed and saved by God, and protected by God, will also die at the hands of the same evil system as many of their brethren. They are a part of the martyrs whose blood is shed because of their testimony and faithfulness to Christ. But they are marked out. They are protected from God's judgment and from God's wrath. And just as a little side note here, this means then, even as this is another insight, we'll see many more, as the destruction of God is going out over all of the earth, as these tremendous devastations are coming upon men, as the very physical creation itself is being overturned and used for the suffering of mankind, God is doing something else in the earth too. He's saving. He's keeping. He's protecting. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but, but we are in, in terms of revelation. But it means then that when Christ returns and he brings judgment on all of his enemies at the end, there are yet a remnant of the saved that are on earth who will come through. And so God here is protecting them from his wrath, though not from the wrath of the Antichrist. Well, let's just consider this then a little more. He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of God on their foreheads. And then he says this, interestingly, verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now that is a significant statement. Who were sealed? Those from every tribe of the sons of Israel, we read it this morning. Now, what does this mean, this number and these who are sealed? Now, some just take synonymous with the great multitudes that are going to be mentioned in verse 9 through the end of the chapter in verse 17. In other words, 144,000 is symbolic of great numbers, and then that's explicitly stated in the vision that is to follow after this, again, beginning in verse 9. They make certain comparisons to the number 12 because there are 12,000 stadiates set on the, the wall, describing the walls of the new Jerusalem, making each of the walls equal 1,500 miles high and, and so forth. And a simple response to that, and we'll emphasize these things as we go out uh, throughout, that there's no textual or contextual reason to take these numbers as anything other than representing an actual count of those who will be sealed. It's simply a position that goes in and saying this work is apocalyptic. Therefore, every number we see is by necessity symbolic and has no real meaning. But we see that's not even true by the very chapters that we've already gone through with the seven churches. These are seven literal historical churches. Yes, the idea has the sense of completeness and the totality of God's work, but it's also through seven literal churches. There's no reason to take numbers as anything other than authentic unless the text gives some clue. This is a literal interpretation. 
Literal interpretation understands figures of speech, hyperbole, and all of those other kind of things, but those are clues in the text. It's a normal use of language. There's nothing here to take this other than 144,000. And you say, is that exactly Scripture repeatedly throughout in the Old Testament and giving battle scenes and so forth gives round numbers. That's a part of literal interpretation. So these are then 144,000. These are 144,000 people who are designated for this particular work of sealing by the angels. Now, who are they? Who are they? Well, again, not surprisingly, there are several suggestions. Some see these as believers of all ages. Again, those who don't take this as a futuristic understanding of events that are to take place, simply as a cyclical picture of God's working and the triumph and the struggle between good and evil at the end of which God will ultimately triumph. You, those who take it that way. This is just the believers of all ages. This is simply the church. This is Jew and Gentile together. This is everybody who's ever been counted among the people of God who are protected by God but that doesn't make any sense by the mere fact that this is specifically given as a situation that is happening before God unleashes these greater judgments on the earth. There's no way to fit that into the history and the whole history of Revelation unless you just want it to. It is not what it means. It's not believers of all ages from Adam on. Others say this is the church. He's specifically referring to the church. And that means that somebody then who comes to Revelation and holds to the position that the church is the new Israel, every single place that Israel is mentioned automatically says that is the church. That is the church, Jew and Gentile together. There is, a, uh, there is already a pre-commitment to reject the idea that there is any sense of a national political entity of Israel, a national Israel. Therefore, every mention of Israel is always, every time, that of the church. And so they would say, this is the church. This is the church. And the only way to see this then, this 12-fold division, as a reference to the church, the very specific numbers, and I'll mention some more other things in a bit, is to come in with the idea that it has to mean that. There's no way you read this text and get church. And he could not say this any more emphatically if he wanted to. The other option then, these are Jewish tribulation saints who have a special function in the world during the time of the tribulation. Notice what he says. They are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Even to take for argument's sake the idea of those who want to see in other passages of Scripture, the idea of Israel or the church being the new Israel, never is this kind of specific language always a reference to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel throughout Scripture, given so specifically to make that kind of comparison. He says, every tribe of the sons of Israel. It is an emphatic statement of the Jewish origin of those who are sealed. Trace that language yourself throughout Scripture. I have. It is a reference to the Jewish people, the sons of Israel. You would think to yourself, if he wanted to say Jewish origin, how else would he have been able to say it? Would he have to say from every tribe of the sons of Israel, no, I really mean it? Not this time? No. He means what it says. From every tribe of the nation, from all of the, the tribes of the nation of Israel, the sons of of Israel. This is God working through the Jewish people in this particular group at the end of the age. It's consistent with Paul's statement in Romans eleven twenty six. so all Israel will be saved. The statement itself in that context, which we've looked at briefly before, necessitates a distinction between the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations. It requires it. It doesn't make sense any other way. All Israel will be saved. God has a purpose for Israel. Therefore, it's not necessary or even consistent with the use of language to simply assume that there's no distinction between Israel and the Gentiles or that God's future plans for Israel are not distinct in some ways from the church. So, 
Some even argue that it can't be possible because of the loss of the records in the destruction of Jerusalem. But this is nonsensical in light of the fact that this isn't based on God sending out his people to figure out who the 12,000 of each tribe are or is. It is God's own determination, his own work of what he's doing. God knows. No, humanly it is impossible, but that is irrelevant. This is what God is doing. And so... Who are these? These are Jews, Jewish people who are from the nation of Israel. And it's worth noting as well, just along this, in terms of consistency of revelation, that this is at the midpoint of the tribulation, just before the breaking of the covenant of the end of Christ, which was anticipated by Daniel's 70th week, which will be made explicit in terms of the time factor in chapter 11 when the two witnesses arise. And the witness himself will be will be followed by persecutions on Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. So unless you take an early date, you know, pre-70 view of Revelation, then this necessitates that there is a Jerusalem in the future yet to come. And this pattern fits Daniel's 70th week in that it's focused on the Jewish people this last week. It's focused on God wrapping up his plans for the nation of Israel. And so here it is. This is an initiation of this at the midweek, most likely the midweek here of this final week that God is bringing about his purposes for the nation of Israel, which here includes sealing 144,000 for salvation for a particular mission. Now, I'll mention that mission at the end, but let me just make a few notes here. As he gives this list, which almost in this mantra-like, you got it when we read it, this mantra, this cadence-like repetition, 12,000, another tribe, 12,000, another tribe, 12,000, another tribe, 12,000, and at the end, 12,000 were sealed. He mentions there at the end after Benjamin. After there are a few anomalies that some want to point out or that some point out uh, in this list as opposed to other lists, which really aren't. One is that Judah is listed first. Some make that an argument for it. It has to be the church because a lot of times Reuben is mentioned first. However, it needs to be noted up front that there are, and this I won't go through all of this because the details, but no consistent list uh, in or consistent way of doing the list of the tribes throughout the Old Testament. For a variety of reasons and circumstances, the list change throughout the Old Testament itself. So the idea that there's some different here doesn't make any significant difference. Judah is listed first, most likely, because Jesus has already been described in Revelation 5.5 as a lion from the tribe of Judah. Matthew 1.1 begins the, his genealogy of Christ with an emphasis first on the place of Judah, from Judah, because Judah was the tribe through whom it was promised that the Messiah would come. The tribe of Dan, interestingly, is not listed here, which is universally understood to be Because of Dan's idolatry, of course, all of the nation of Israel fell into idolatry. Dan particularly played a unique role, even rejected God's blessing for them in the land, moving out, and were known throughout the Old Testament for their idolatry and siding with uh, idolatrous nations and bringing, introducing that into the nation of Israel. They are listed, interestingly, Dan, uh, later as receiving in the eternal state, or in the millennial kingdom, blessing from God in Ezekiel 48. But here they are excluded. In fact, uh, one, an early church writer, Irenaeus, said this uh, on this point, commenting on Jeremiah 8:16, said, this too is the reason that this tribe is not reckoned in the apocalypse along with those who are saved, and is referring to their idolatry. Some, even uh, second century writers, said that Dan was the tribe out of which the Antichrist would come. So Judah was out of which the Savior would come, and Dan was uh, the one out of which the Antichrist would come. As tradition, there's nothing to put a lot of weight in that. But the point is, is Dan is not listed, and Dan has a history of their idolatry. Levi is included. He's not always included in Old Testament lists, but here he does have, uh, is included in those who are a part of the sealing They were a tribe of Israel. Often they're not in Old Testament lists sometimes because they had their inheritance among the tribes, if you'll remember. Joseph is mentioned uh, rather than his two sons, but not Ephraim isn't mentioned, but Manasseh is. 
Uh, if you were to go back to Numbers 132, this also is not uncommon. Joseph there was closely identified with Ephraim. So to say Joseph is to include the idea of Ephraim and Manasseh is to then bring in his other son, Manasseh, who also was prone to idolatry but of a different sort as, in terms of its degree with uh, Dan. So there's no, so why are these marked out? So those are just some anomalies that fall within the normal way of listing the tribes. But the more question, important question is, why are they marked out? And let me just mention this before we come in, and I'll do this quickly. Why are they marked out? Well, one, the fact that they are a distinct group, that they come before the judgments of the trumpets beginning in chapter 8, that they are a subgroup of the larger group of redeemed in verse 9. We'll talk about that later. That there is a heightened persecution against the Jews that is clearly going to be unfolded from this point on makes it likely that they are marked out and protected to be particular witnesses for Christ through whom many others, both from the Jews and the Gentiles, are saved. As a matter of fact, he indicates this when he mentions them again in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, and here I'll just reference it, that they are described as those who followed the Lamb, who kept themselves pure, but then they are described as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. In other words, they are the first instance. They are the beginning, the first fruits of God turning his saving attention to the nation of Israel. And that's what they are. They are the first then to experience God's promised salvation to the Jews at the end of the age. Again, for time's sake, we won't look at these passages. You could look at some, Isaiah 49, 5-6, Jeremiah 31, 7-10, and others. They are going to suffer because that was the promise of the day of the Lord when we looked at that before. There would be great suffering before salvation. They would suffer, but they would also serve a purpose of God in this time. They would turn to the Lord. They would be sealed by God. They would be used by him to advance his saving purposes, and there would be a price that they would pay. Now, as we come into the table, let me just note this. While this anticipates God's future for Israel, that will include his, how he uses them for the rest of the world, but Israel's, and it includes Israel's role in the tribulation as persecuted witnesses, it is a reminder for us and God's people throughout the ages that he has determined how and when we will each individually be his witnesses in the world. God has determined what that looks like, what each of us will face, the circumstances that will have to be witnesses in, the effects of our witnesses, and the consequences. It's a reminder that we are to simply trust him and let God work out his purposes with our glad obedience and our glad looking to the Savior. And it's a reminder that he is absolutely in control of his word and his kingdom. And it's that kingdom that we celebrate this morning as we come to the table. We are who know him as well, in a sense, drawing up just from the imagery of salvation, those who have been called, out, called and marked out from before the foundation of the world, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, the called, those belonging to Christ. And while that's not his meaning of the seal here, he does, it is true, as he says in Ephesians, that we are sealed by the Spirit of God, we who belong to him. And that sealing includes his work of regeneration and giving life, his indwelling work of revealing to us the glory of God in the face of Christ, of keeping us through conviction of sin, of trusting in Christ continually, of believing his word, of loving the fellowship of the saints, and being guarded and protected in our walk to stay faithful and persevere to the end. And there's a sense in which this supper itself is the seal given to us by God of the reminder that we are His. It's a symbol. It's a recognition visibly that we are the people of God. We are the belong, the body of Christ. We are the ones who belong to Him. We are the saved. We are the redeemed. We are the kept. We are the citizens of the kingdom to come. We are the ones who are part of the inheritance which is ours, imperishable and undefiled. We are Christ sons and daughters and children of God. And so we would remember the glorious and wonderful reality that of all the world 
on which this judgment is coming, we are the spared and the kept. And we rejoice and we praise him in our very act of, by faith, coming to him and to his table this morning. So let me pray, and then the men will come back down. Father, we thank you for these promises are so precious, so magnificent, so wonderful. And as wonderful as they are, they have no effect on our heart or no ability to renew our mind unless you, Holy Spirit, come and give it that power and effect. You are the giver of faith, the giver of life, the keeper of that life. You are the ultimate source behind the growth of that life in us as we come to understand our Savior and salvation more and more. So I pray that you would, even now, as we take these elements, and by faith we remember our Savior, that you would reveal him to us in our hearts, refresh us with reminders of his grace, encourage us with reminders of those exhortations to holiness, and seal in our hearts with certainty and joy the promise of our future to be with him forever. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.